This is the Thrive Podcast with Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And now, Pastor Fred Jeff Smith. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you took the time to either view or listen to today's podcast. We always want to let you know that we welcome comments about the podcast. You can write me at fredjeffsmith at cox.net, fredjeffsmith at cox.net, and let us know how we're doing, good, bad, or otherwise. We want this to be uh, a good venue for excellent conversation, and we welcome your input. I'm very happy today to welcome Mr. Niles Hamer uh, to the Thrive Podcast. Mr. Hamer is an attorney here in Baton Rouge, and he's currently running for juvenile court judge, and I'm very happy that you took the time to share with us today. How are you, sir? I'm doing well today. I'm very happy to be here today to speak with you, Ram. Well, good. Tell us about Niles Hamer. I know you told me a little bit before we started recording, but 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 tell us about the Niles Hamer store. Well, uh, I'm 41 years old. I've been practicing here in state of Louisiana and Baton Rouge for the last 16 years. I graduated from Southern University Law Center in 2003, and. In my 16 years of practicing, I've done civil cases. I do a lot of criminal defense work. I do a lot of juvenile uh, court work. Uh, but I was actually supposed to be a corporate lawyer at one time. Mm-hmm. I was in law school. I was getting all these uh, calls from these big corporate law firms. And uh, my professor, Professor Jacqueline Nash, who's a member of Shiloh, yes. pulled me to the side and said, hey, baby, I need you to do something for me. I need you to uh, sign up for my juvenile law clinic class because not that many students have signed up for it. I said, well, I, I don't know. I don't really have an interest in juvenile law, but I'll do it. So I signed up for the class, and immediately I started taking cases, and I, I gained a passion for it because the kids that were coming in for me to represent mirrored me, reminded me of me, mm-hmm. all the way down to the issues that they were having. And what I realized is that when you're growing up as a young black male and you don't have a father in the house, it's going to lead to behavioral problems. Mm-hmm. It'll lead to possible substance abuse problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're more likely to drop out of high school and just you could end up in prison. Those are the stats. Those stats are real just by not having a father in the home. And I didn't grow up with a father in my home. Mm-hmm. I grew up actually born here in Baton Rouge at the at the woman's hospital. I almost called it the old woman's hospital. It's the police station now. Yes. But at the at the woman's hospital uh, in 1978. And I lived here until 1986. My parents were divorced. My dad was a lawyer at the time. He mm-hmm. used to actually practice with Walter Dumas. I believe he's a member of, he is. of your a church. He is. here. That's yes. right. And the office right down the street, uh, right above Webb's Barbershop. They practiced there for years and years. But what happened to my dad, he had a substance abuse problem. He had a drug addiction. And that drug addiction caused him to lose his family. He focused on the drugs. And as a child, I didn't know what was going on. Mm -hmm. All I knew is we had to move to Mississippi back to my mom's hometown. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in Gulfport, Mississippi, but I didn't have my father there. That was the, uh, the thing that caused a lot of anger in my childhood. I began to act out, and, you know, I just wasn't a whole child, W-H-O-L-E, whole child, mm-hmm. because I was missing something. And 
fortunately for me, I had a mom that had to work two jobs to make ends meet. Uh, we, I had uh, two other brothers. It was difficult, but I had that village. You know, I had that pastor in church that kind of pulled me to the side to help me along. I had my track coach who kind of helped me along. I had a village of people mm -hmm. that kind of stood in the shoes of my father. You really can't replace that, but helped us along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom always told me that I could be somebody. I can change the world. And children today, they just don't hear that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And just the mere the mere words of you can be somebody, you can change the world, you can make a difference, can go a long way with a child. And growing up, I heard that a lot. I attended Southern in 1996, uh, majored in political science, did four years at Southern, and went straight to Southern University Law Center, where I graduated in two th 2003 mm -hmm. after doing my one year in juvenile law clinic. I turned down corporate jobs because I had a passion for juvenile justice. And I remember P Professor Nash telling me, well, baby, you only have to take one case a year. You need to go out there and make money. You're not going to make money in juvenile court. Right. So I promised that I would just take one case a year. I ended up taking about 50 cases a year at no charge. Mm -hmm. So I've worked 16 years in juvenile court representing families, children, on real issues for 16 years. And I can count on my two hands, the amount of times I've been paid, and I'm talking about hundreds of cases, and I didn't do it for the money. Mm -hmm. I did it because these kids, they needed somebody to believe in them. Mm -hmm. And 90% of the system is African-American boys, males, who are growing up with uh, the family unit not complete mm -hmm. and thinking that they only can amount to a troublemaker. They can only do what their father did, which was end up in prison or end up dead, and they think they have no hope. I've had kids at the age of 15 that hadn't even crossed the hump to go to Southern University's campus, and it's unbelievable. We're right here in Baton Rouge, and they live right in Scotlandville, and you've never been to Southern's campus mm -hmm. or LSU. They feel like it's not attainable for them, mm -hmm. and I believe in giving those kids hope, and I believe in seeing them for the potential that they have and the reason I'm so passionate about it is because I was that kid at one time. You mentioned that uh, you all, you, you, while you were born here, you, you were you, you spent a, a large amount of your childhood in Gulfport. Uh, I believe you also told me that your parents were alums of Alcorn. That's true. Did you ever think about staying in Mississippi? What drew you back to Baton Rouge as opposed to Mississippi? That's a very good question because both of my parents are Braves, Alcorn Braves. They just, they love Alcorn. Right. I, I actually visited Alcorn's campus when I was in high school, and I said, well, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way. I saw a lot of trees and cattle, and I didn't see enough people, so I said, I there's no way. But I, I actually lived here in Baton Rouge for uh for eight years before my mom and dad divorced. My mom worked at Southern University in the library from 1974 to 1986. Okay. My dad graduated from Southern University Law Center in 1974, and he practiced law here in Baton Rouge. So I always saw Baton Rouge as my hometown. I grew up, I was born in the Women's Hospital. Mm -hmm. I lived on Grand Drive in Glen Oaks, which is the street right behind Earl K. Long. Right. We would go in the backyard to play, and all we can see is the big tower, Earl K. Long, towering over us. Right. Baton Rouge was was my hometown. So when I when we moved to Mississippi at, at eight years old, and once I graduated high school at 18, I said, "There's no 
choice but to go back to my hometown and go back to Southern University because mm-hmm. I loved Southern University. So when I got back here in 1996, I mean, the city changed somewhat from 1986 to 1996. Right. I, I remember I used to love being at Delmont Village around Christmas, this was like the best place to be. Delmont Village was almost like an outside outlet mall. It was right. so beautiful. So I get back in 96 and I say, oh my goodness, what happened to Delmont Village? I see the Piccadilly's there, but everything else looked... Everything looked, else has changed. Yeah, everything had changed. And uh, even my Bomberche Mall had changed. Yes. Everything that I I love and grew up with as a child in 86, when I come back at the age of 18, it was a little different. You know, some things were more run down than I thought they should have been. Right. Yeah, plain Road looked just totally different to me yeah. than I than than it was as a child, but I always considered Baton Rouge my hometown. So I've actually been back here in Baton Rouge since '96. So for the last 23 years, right. I'm like I'm back to where I was supposed to be okay. in Baton Rouge. But I had a very good experience in Gulfport, Mississippi, mm-hmm. because I grew up without my father being there. And at the age of eight, you just don't understand. And my mom is a beautiful person. She never spoke ill of my father. Some mm-hmm. some mothers and, and fathers, when they separate from the other parent, they'll tear down the other parent. And all, you, all you're doing is really traumatizing the child. My mother never did that. She mm-hmm. would always say, your father's a good person. He's just ill. My father had a drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was cocaine at one time, and then it turned to crack cocaine. He could not uh, be a part of a family unit. He just couldn't do mm-hmm. it. And when he tried to get better, he ended up in federal prison. No, He had no history of criminality. He ended up in federal prison just based on a drug transaction. And the feds sent him away for nine and a half years. Mm -hmm. That impacted me. And when people today talk about mass uh, uh, incarceration, they talk about it in in a a set of numbers and the stats, I lived it. I know what mass incarceration does Mm -hmm. to a family. Mm -hmm. So growing up without a father, there's a lot of temptations, a lot of distractions. Uh, I believe stats show that when you don't have a father in the home, you're more likely to have behavioral problems out of the children, you're more likely to have substance abuse issues out of the children. They're more likely not to graduate high school, and they're more likely to end up in prison. Mm -hmm. And all of those things I faced growing up because we didn't have a lot of money. My mom had to work two jobs just to make ends meet. It was a difficult time. There was a time where I was like the kids that I represent today, that I just wanted to show off because I didn't know any other way. Because when I was in schools in Mississippi, we didn't have uniforms. We had to dress up every day. Mm-hmm. You had to have the latest Nike tennis shoes on. Well, I had ponies. And if you remember ponies, it was just a, a, a wide open V and the word pony. My friends had Nikes. You know, I didn't have the latest uh, Jabot jeans. I had the Wrangler jeans with the patches. Mm-hmm. It was tough. It mm-hmm. was tough to come from a childhood where you had a father who was an attorney who provided material things to you. We had everything we wanted when I lived in Baton Rouge. But mm-hmm. when my parents divorced and we moved to Mississippi, we actually had to move in with my grandfather in a three-bedroom uh, shotgun-style house with about seven or eight family members. Mm-hmm. And it was tough. As a child, I got through it. I, the only way I knew how, and my, my mom explained to me, the way you set yourself free is not showing off and talking back to the teachers, which I was doing, is education. Mm-hmm. And she made sure 
that I was at school every day. I was one of the worst kids at school, but I was the worst kid with perfect attendance. <laughs> so when they were doing the award shows and everybody would get all the awards, they would say, Niles Hamer, perfect attendance, because she taught me school is not an option. Mm-hmm. I don't care. We don't, we don't let you decide when to go to school. And that's what's happening today. Mm-hmm. Parents are giving kids an option whether they should go to school or not. I didn't have that option. And education was the key for me getting out of a bad situation and actually getting to Southern and doing something with my life. Did you always know that you wanted a career in law? Did you come to law? How, how did that come about? And this is what I believe makes me different from the kids that I'm, I'm dealing with in my practice. The kids I'm dealing with in my practice, they're told, they're never told that they can be somebody. They're never told that they can change the world, that they can make a difference, that they can uh, be doctors, lawyers, or whatever. They, they aren't told that. They, they aren't seen until discipline comes around. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, I knew that my father had been a lawyer. My mom always told me my father was very bright. He's a smart man. You just like him. You can be a lawyer. You just can't make certain mistakes, but you can be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You know, I was always told you you make good arguments in a class. You, you, you kind of shame the teachers sometimes, but you need to use that skill, that talent in a different way. So. I knew that I had potential because my village told me I had potential. So probably at a very early age, I would say uh, early middle school, I knew that I would probably be a lawyer. I did well on debate teams. I did well in social studies. I just, I like any subject that will allow me to argue a point instead of just adding up numbers. So I'm, I'm not the best number person in the world, but I'm good at expressing myself. And my mom knew that to her chagrin. I gave her a lot of problems because I knew how to express myself and be very argumentative. Mm -hmm. But she said, use all of that that you're using in the streets and talking back to me and your teachers, use it the right way. You're very, very expressive. You're passionate about things, but you can use it the right way. So I began to use it the right way. I focused on my studies, started doing a lot better in high school, but still got to Southern University only because I I had a fast food job where I made $4.25 an hour. Mm -hmm. And... I had to help my mom pay the bills. All of my brothers, we had bills that we had to pay. I was responsible for the phone bill because evidently I like to talk a lot. Uh, I had one brother had to pay the cable. One brother had to pay the lights. We helped my mom out. Sure. But because I worked making four twenty-five an hour, flipping burgers, uh, when it was time to do financial aid, I didn't qualify for financial aid. They said my mom's income along with my income meant I made too much money. And then they told me in the last minute, this was Southern telling me this, in 96 and I had graduated in 96 so I only had three months to get ready for college and I realized I didn't have financial aid so I worked that summer double shifts just to come up with the money to pay my way into Southern University because I didn't have a scholarship mm-hmm. once I got to Southern I realized it's so hard the money is it costs so much to go to school mm-hmm. $2,500 was just unheard of for me and my mom it's just we couldn't afford it I, I, I vowed to not have to pay for school so I finished my freshman year with a four point and I had a scholarship ever since. I never had to pay a dime to go to Southern University Excellent. after that. Yeah, and I, I received a scholarship to go to the law school, too. So my education after that first year was free because I applied myself. I finally decided to apply myself. So, you know, that's really the background of, of how I got here into this point where I'm um, – actually going into juvenile court every day fighting for kids, and that's what I do for a living. I go in and fight for them. Did you ever 
uh, serve as a prosecutor, city prosecutor, district attorney, uh, in anything on that side. I know you do criminal mm -hmm. defense. Mm -hmm. Were you ever on the other side? So when I turned down corporate America, mm -hmm. I had some attorneys. There's a local attorney by the name of Gail Horn Ray who does a lot of criminal defense and civil rights work. And I told her what I was going to do. I said, you know, I have a passion for juvenile justice. I want to do criminal defense. She sat me down and said, I do want you to understand it's hard work. It's not financially rewarding, mm -hmm. but you will get some gratification when justice is served. Mm -hmm. However, you're not going to be able to get all the things you want in life because the corporate jobs will guarantee that. You're going to have to hustle for what you get. And I made a decision at the age of 25 that I'm going to hang up my own shingle mm -hmm. and I'm going to do this on my own. So my first year of practice, I started off in the law offices of O.C. Brown uh, where Technically, I was on my own. I just paid them for overhead and for the roof uh, over my head, too. But I practiced. They said, you go out there and practice. You get your own cases. You make your own money. So I did that until I was 26, and then I opened up my own law firm. Okay. So I'm, I'm right across the street from Mount Zion Baptist Church on T.J. Jemison Boulevard yeah. to this day. So at the age of 26, and I'm 41 now, I've been doing it on my own. I hadn't worked for the prosecutor's office. I hadn't worked for any governmental agencies. At one time, I did some conflict work for the public defender's office, but mm -hmm. I have represented uh, real people, real families, real children with real issues for the last 16 years. Okay, let's talk about criminal law. Yes. Uh, in Baton Rouge. Let's talk about yes. certain situations. I saw in yesterday's business report uh, a mention that uh, District Attorney Hiller Moore is going to approach the Metro Council about uh, a $500,000 increase to his budget mm -hmm. so that he can hire uh, more attorneys because their caseload is getting too large and mm -hmm. he needs uh, more attorneys with a little bit more expertise in order to uh, properly prosecute mm -hmm. these people. Uh, I made mention on, on Facebook citing that article that the advocate had come out uh, back in June, I believe, mm -hmm. with, with with an article from Mike Mitchell, who is the public defender, mm -hmm. the, the chief public defender, and uh, he may mention the fact that the public defender's office was going to have to uh, cease work because they did not have sufficient funding, uh, they did not have sufficient staff, <coughs> excuse me, in order to provide proper defense mm -hmm. for these people. And I find it troubling mm -hmm. that the district attorney uh, will more than likely get a substantial portion of what he is asking for, even though their budget trumps the uh, no, no, no pun intended. Trumps the uh, the, the the public defender's budget uh, tremendously. Mm -hmm. uh, the public defender's office is, is being asked to work with pennies, whereas the the district attorney has hundreds of thousands of dollars already at his disposal, mm -hmm. and he's asking for half a million dollars more. As a part of the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. as an attorney that works within that system. 
how do you respond to that? I'm not going to ask you to justify yes. it. How do you respond to the discrepancy mm -hmm. in, 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 in funding that these two officers receive? Well, let me start off by saying that I've practiced criminal defense for the last 16 years. I'm in court nearly every day defending somebody in criminal court and dealing with uh, assistant DAs, and I have a good relationship with all of them. But I will say this. I am probably one of the people that have not benefited from the fact that the public defender's office doesn't receive more funds. At one time, I was a conflict attorney for the public defender's office on child support cases. Mm -hmm. Child support, you may say, why you need a public defender for child support? Because any case that can result in you being locked up in jail, you really have a right to have counsel. The sure. Constitution guarantees you counsel. Sure. The public defender's office has already suspended all of its representation to any individuals in child support court that's facing possible jail time. So I was part of those cuts. The public defender's office is underfunded. The prosecution office, Hillary Moore's office, I'm not going to say that they're overfunded. They probably need more funds, but I think there's some things we can do in alternative to uh, prosecution and incarceration. I'll mm -hmm. get to that. But as far as the public defender's office, it is gravely un underfunded to the point where some of the attorneys could be in ethical violation because they have so many files, so many clients, so much they have to do, and you putting this on one or two attorneys in each section, it's almost impossible. So I would say, in my opinion, the more dire need is with the public defender's office because they're representing the poor, people who don't have money. A vast majority of people who go through the criminal justice system are poor. Right. And the reason they're in the criminal justice system and stuck in jail a lot is because they're so poor they can't even afford to bond out of jail. So we're penalizing people prior to trial because they hadn't been convicted of anything right. prior to trial, sitting them in jail only because they're too poor to afford to get out. They can't get bonded. Yeah, they can't get bonded. So the haves, they can bond out. They can hire uh, big big shot lawyers and they can get themselves out of a bind a lot of times but the poor I have clients that tell me Mr. Hamer I need to go home I need to see my family I'm trying to keep my job I didn't do what they said I did but I'm going to plead guilty just so the judge will release me right. and it's a sad broken system right. if we're allowing people individuals to plead guilty just so they can get out of jail right. and that's what a, a vast majority of the people who are stuck in jail end up doing but i believe that's because our the public defender system is underfunded we have a lot of people who are poor who can't afford an attorney and public defender system is overwhelmed. Do judges have a role in this? Uh, it, you, you, you're running for juvenile court mm -hmm. judge. Uh, but it would just seem to me that a judge who, who is, for lack of a better mm -hmm. uh, analogy, an umpire mm -hmm. in, 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 in this criminal justice uh, system that's, that's taking place, a judge can see that you've got a disproportionate amount of of resources that are being spent to prosecute mm -hmm. versus resources that are being allocated to defend, even though from a constitutional standpoint, you have a right to an adequate defense. Yeah. It seems to be something that's only in name. Yes. And I'm wondering, 
can a judge step in and say this is not right and there needs to be some balance brought to this? I, I believe a judge can step in and say we need to get more funds for the public defender on special capital cases where you're dealing with murder. They can say, well, the public defender's office, we're going to grant a motion so they can get more funds. When you're defending somebody for a, a possible death penalty, possible life sentences, they do what they can as far as judges to see, to make sure both sides are well funded. Mm -hmm. But I'm just talking about the everyday cases. Right. It's, 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 an, it's an inequality. I, I, I have clients who can barely afford to get out of jail. And when they get out of jail, you have some judges that impose a, a bond supervision fee. Now that you've been able to bond out, we want you to be supervised on bond. And there's fees up to $500 a month just to be supervised on bond. I don't think it's right. I think you're punishing people simply because they're poor. What's the purpose of this supervision fee? The, the purpose, me, I think vendors make a lot of money from the courts. Some cases you have domestic abuse cases where you want to make sure that person doesn't go harm the victim anymore, so they may need to be supervised. You have some cases where it's a third offense, fourth offense, DWI, and you want to make sure that person is getting substance abuse treatment mm -hmm. and not getting behind the wheel of a car. So I understand in some instances, but there's a lot of cases where they just require a supervision fee. Person just been arrested for possession of a drug, and now they get out and they have to pay a supervision fee just to be supervised while they await trial. And this could go on for months and months and months. And so, supervision involves coming in, sitting down with a counselor or some sort of person explaining your behavior and it's almost, what you're doing to improve yourself. Yeah. I'm, I'm asking. Yes, is it's, that what it's, it is? it's almost like a probation officer. Yeah, that's what it but sounds it's, like. It's a privately... Uh, a private business that's doing probation services, mm -hmm. and we call it pretrial probation. I'm I'm not a believer in pretrial probation. I am a believer. Sometimes you have to monitor people who are out. Uh, maybe you can uh, use an ankle monitor. Uh, but I'm not a a a person who thinks that 90% of the people that come through the court that are charged, and it's usually felony charges that mm -hmm. are charged with felony, need to be spending their money being supervised. You know, I, I just don't believe that. And the reason why you have private companies that are making a killing on the court system, they really, they're making some money. And unless it's, it's, it's a case where a person has, this is their second time getting arrested within a matter of months, and it's like, okay, now I'm going to have to, if you get out, you have to be supervised. It's not even that. There is, there's not even a, a system for it. Some people get supervision. Some people don't. You just never know. And that's the problem I have with it. It's just not any guidelines it's for arbitrary. it. It's arbitrary. It's arbitrary, very arbitrary. And it's, it's, it's a broken system because now you've got to, once you pay to get out, you got to pay to stay out. And these, we, we're talking about people who have uh, obligations to their children, to their family. They're working a job that's not paying them a whole lot of money. And right. now we're going to tax them some more. Right. So the court system becomes a debt collector right. in a way. And I just don't believe that's what the justice system is for. And who mandates this supervision fee? Is that something that comes uh, through the legislature, the state legislature? Is that something that comes through the Metro Council? Uh, how is this mandated? Okay. So in juvenile court, we don't have we have supervisors while we have children out on bond, right. but that's provided through juvenile services. Uh, 
the children and the families, they don't have to pay for that. Okay. In the 19th Judicial District Court, it's the judges that have come up with uh, the supervision of some of these defendants. There's no legislative statute that says that when you bond out okay. of jail, you must pay a supervision fee if you've been charged with XYZ crime. There's nothing on the books that says that. Okay. It, it, it gives the court a lot of discretion as to what they want to do when somebody bonds out of jail. Okay. I'm just a firm believer that you know, if you got arrested for possession of a drug and I say, yes, you can bond out of jail. This will be your bond. And maybe one of the conditions is go get a substance abuse evaluation. I'm not saying you did this, but I just want to see a substance abuse evaluation to see if you have a problem. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But to tell somebody we're going to supervise you, we're going to have you pay a supervision fee, we're going to watch you month in and month out until your case is resolved. There's a lot of the times I go to court and say, Judge, this guy has been on supervision for three months. He's paid $250 a month. He can't afford it, Judge. He's testing clean. Can we just suspend the supervision? The case isn't over. I'm just asking the judge to stop him from having to pay to a private vendor right. all this money that he cannot afford. Right. And they don't do this in every jurisdiction. And they do it a lot in East Baton Rouge Parish. They do it in Orleans Parish. But you can go out to Calcasieu Parish, and they may not even have a pre-supervision uh, system set up, uh, pre-trial supervision system set up. It's just something they do here that's not regulated well, and it's not statutory. That's why you have a lot of criminal defense attorneys that are up in arms with it. Fortunately for me in juvenile court, we're not going to have a system like that. Mm -hmm. We're going to have our pre-trial supervision done by our juvenile services, and it's going to be at no cost to the families uh, at all. So we don't have to worry about burdening them with an extra cost. Well, let's focus in on juvenile court. Yes. Because that, that's the office that you are going yes. to be seeking. Uh, what is the typical case that comes into a juvenile uh, court? Is it a child custody case? Mm -hmm. Is it a truancy case? Is it a drug case? Is it a gang case? Yes. What, what, what's the typical case that crosses a juvenile court judge? When I tell people I'm running for juvenile court judge, the first thing they think, I'm dealing with kids who have committed crimes. Mm -hmm. While that is true, I'll be dealing with kids who allegedly committed crimes. That's maybe only one-third of what we deal with in juvenile court. Juvenile court is separate from the 19th district, district Court. We're not downtown in uh, some fabulous building downtown. We're, we're by the airport. They still call us Ryan's because the airport used to be called Ryan's. I remember. Yes, yeah, so we're by the airport. The building is pretty dilapidated. Yes. I've showed a couple of people the building. They say, you want to run to be the judge of this dilapidated building? So the yes. building is dilapidated. It's, it's, it's falling apart. But... We only have two judges, you know, and we have we're the most populous parish in the state of Louisiana. We only have two juvenile court judges. Jefferson Parish has four, Orleans Parish has four, Cattle Parish has four. We're more populous in those three parishes and we only have two. So sometimes that tells me the importance of juvenile justice to our local elected officials. Mm -hmm. Now with that being said, we deal with truancy cases, kids not going to school, we deal with child welfare cases, we call them child in need of care cases. We deal with cases where what we call the kid ungovernable. Kid hadn't committed a crime or anything. Kid just talking back to mom, right. 
just just being unruly. Right. We deal with those cases. We deal with juvenile traffic cases. Uh, we deal with adoptions, which is sometimes the most rewarding things we can do in juvenile court is dealing with the adoptions. That matter of fact, that's one of the few times I hear applause in court is when we complete an, ad, uh, an adoption. So you decide whether or not a family is fit or, or an individual is fit mm-hmm. to adopt a child. Yes. That, we, that's a juvenile court. That's judges. a juvenile court jurisdiction matter. Okay. So we deal with that. And then we deal with what everybody talks about is juvenile delinquency matters. Right. And now uh, the age range this year, it used to be 16 and under. It's now 17 and under. It always should have been 17 and under. Mm-hmm. I've represented kids downtown in adult court who still had their Struma High uniform on or their Capitol High uniform on. And I'm right. thinking they're kids. Just because they're 17, they shouldn't be in adult court. So now the legislature is smart now. They decided 17 and under would go to juvenile court. Mm-hmm. It increased the docket in juvenile court. And remember, we only have two judges. We should have about four. We have four family court judges. We have 15 district court judges. We have two juvenile court judges. And who decides that? Who? Well, it's the legislator. The, it's the state legislator. state legislator. They have a very big say-so in how the judges will be dis, uh, allocated to each parish. And when so as, a, as an attorney who practices regularly in juvenile court before, mm-hmm. you, before you ever uh, ascend to the office of, of a judge, mm-hmm. has it ever been your practice to lobby the legislature to increase the number of seats for the juvenile court system. I've talked to elected uh, state representatives about it. They they are actually intrigued about the whole prospect of increasing uh, our our judgeships in juvenile court. Okay. It's where will you find the money? We're already in dilapidated building. I believe we need a very brand new uh, youth justice center. And I believe we can have all the resources under one roof to help all the kids that we can. Isn't there a push right now to build a new parish prison? There is a push for a new parish prison. But there's Uh, no push to, to improve juvenile court uh, facilities? No. There, there Isn't has, that interesting? There, there we ha- can find money to yes. to incarcerate, mm-hmm. but we can't find money to mete out justice. And, and see, juvenile court, and this is just in my viewpoint, is the most important court in the state of Louisiana. We mm-hmm. have Court of Appeals, we have Supreme Court, we have uh, District Court, and we in, in our District Court we have Civil and Criminal Court. The reason I say it's the most important court, the issues that we deal with on the back end when people turn into adults, we can be proactive and deal with them as children Mm -hmm. because we can steer them in the right direction. Mm -hmm. You know, we have all the resources I believe we need right here in East Baton Rouge Parish to steer them in the right direction. But if you ever get a chance, just go look at the juvenile court. When you go out there... I've been there, but it's been a while. When you go there, you say, well, I kind of know why, you know, the system is broken. If we're not willing to invest... And our children. Right. You know, in our children. Because right. I think uh, Tasha Clark Amar has done a wonderful job for the seniors. They have new developments popping up all over this parish. Why don't we have a youth council where we have developments popping up all over the parish for the youth? I know we have schools, but I'm saying outside of the schools. Right. Why don't we have a new juvenile court coming up? The reason why, there's no funds. It'll take millions of dollars. There's already talk about juvenile court moving down to the 19th Judicial District Court building, but it's logistical problems with that. We can't have uh, kids that are in custody uh, with adults that are in custody. It will increase the docket out there. Mm-hmm. It will be crowded coming in. There's a lot of issues, I understand, mm-hmm. but I believe it's high time that we invest 
in our youth and investing in our youth if we want to be proactive and we don't want to worry about being number one in locking people up in the, the United States and number one uh, in crime rate in the United States let's look at what's happening with our juvenile justice system I always make this argument Rev. kids at 16 and 17 don't start off in the Walmart parking lot robbing grandma that's not how they get their start. They start off with small things. They're not. They're, they're disobeying their their parents. They're not coming in when they're supposed to come in. They're violating curfew and talking back to the teachers. And then eventually they just stop going to school, and it just keeps building up. And they start with the first property crime where they're taking a an iPad out of somebody's car and they get a slap on a arrest board. Then they're breaking windows of several cars, and it, we just never deal with it until they're robbing. Uh, grandma in the Walmart parking lot. Then we want to say, well, what happened here? Well, we missed out on so many opportunities mm -hmm. with this child. Today, before I got here today, I had one of the saddest cases. I had a kid that was remanded back to the custody of the Office of Juvenile Justice. That's just like DOC uh, for children. And his mother is on drugs, so he goes out late at night to find his mother. He's 18 now, but he goes out late at night because he knows he can find his mother somewhere on the corner. That's when she comes out, so he walks around late at night. He violated his curfew. He's not supposed to be out late at night. His father is incarcerated for the next 30 years, and he has a one-year-old child now, and he lives with his grandmother, but his grandmother says it's too much. She can do nothing with him. So the court had a tough decision to make today. The court ended up remanding him back because he's violated his parole, but he wasn't committing any criminal acts. He wasn't doing any of that. He, he just didn't have the initiative to go out and get a job and do much of anything to help himself. But at the same time, that 18-year-old kid that has been put back into the system, we had many opportunities when he first came in the system at 14 mm -hmm. to get him some help, to tell him he's somebody, help him fulfill his potential. And I think the system fails every time we have a kid that either is brought into the adult system because they're going to be charged as an adult or brought back into the juvenile justice system and remanded and have their parole violated. I think we fail as a system. I believe we can work with our kids and steer them in the right way. I want to see kids for who they are. A lot of people, there's kids that they haven't been told that they're important. And I know that seems small and minor. Mm -hmm. But when I tell a kid, hey, come ride with me, I'm going to take you to Southern. I'm mm -hmm. going to Southern. Nobody's ever taken me to Southern University before. Mm -hmm. Nobody's taken me in the barbershop before. It's amazing. I used to mentor to these kids. Matter of fact, when I first met my wife, I met her at Cartana Mall. I had five kids with me. This is I was 25 years old. This is 16 years ago. I had five kids with me. And we were playing in the arcade and I meet my wife and she's stunningly beautiful. So I meet my wife and I'm like, okay, she's going to think I'm just out here immature playing with some kids. But it impressed her so much. She mm -hmm. wanted to go out on the date with me. We have a, a man that's giving back to the community, that's mentoring to these kids. I believe we need to mentor them to a little, uh, to our children a little bit more. We need to focus on the kids that aren't already going to college. We need to mentor to those kids too. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of our programs are geared towards the kids that have the 3.8 GPAs and they're headed to Xavier. And I'm like, well, what about the kid in Scotlandville that hadn't even been to Southern's campus yet mm -hmm. and is skipping school in 11th grade? and is not going to finish high school. We need to catch him before he gives up. And that's what I've been doing the last 16 years. It, at no charge, not getting paid for anything, is helping kids as much as I can. I've had kids to 
be killed in uh, drug transactions. I have a kid that was killed in a uh, drag racing on Airline Highway. I've been to more funerals for my clients and my mentees than I can ever uh, express here. It's painful because I feel like I failed a child when that happens. Sure. But then I have some situations where there's some success stories and even if the success stories aren't as 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 many as i would want them to be it keeps me going Mm -hmm. it's the fuel that i need to keep doing what i do Mm -hmm. so when i decided to run for judge i had so many parents call me like oh my goodness you know you're perfect you know i want to do a testimonial for you i want to do this for you i want to do that for you and it's because they know that i gave my heart and soul to some of these kids and i have kids that ended up in angola i have one kid that i really helped out a lot and he's serving 16 years in dallas texas his outdate is 2032 right now you know i can't even when he went in in 2015 2030 too just seems just just blew my mind because he he's to me he's still a kid but he's an adult now so uh, it's 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 a difficult job i'm very passionate about it i'm very emotional about it but i want to help our youth fulfill their potential what can the church do what can the african-american faith-based community uh because I'm Baptist. Mm-hmm. You're Catholic. Yes. You, you, you were raised Baptist, but you're you're Catholic. Yes. I, I don't want to limit it to a discussion mm-hmm. about denomination. Yes. What can the African American faith-based community do in response to the needs that you see on on a daily basis? I would tell you this: we have, and if you just think about a one-mile radius around Shiloh, mm-hmm. thirty churches, maybe. African-American church, even my church, St. Francis Xavier, is within that one-mile radius. There's so many churches out there. There's churches on every corner in black communities. What can we do? I think we need to be more collaborative in what we do. I've noticed this recently, especially with back-to-school events. I've probably been to 30 back-to-school events. Mm -hmm. It's like everybody is doing their own back-to-school event because they want to have the credit for it. There's a lot of egos involved. Mm -hmm. I think we have to, and this is not just for the faith-based organizations, it's community-based organizations, too, and elected officials. Mm -hmm. We have to put our egos aside. We're all about unity and helping our our children and raising them the right way. We have to be more collaborative in what we do. Mm -hmm. And some of these organizations, they want their name on it. They'll let you sponsor it, pay some money to have a little sponsorship, but they want to control everything. They don't want it to be collaborative. And when you, we're, we're divided as, as faith-based organizations and we're divided as community-based organizations, everybody wants to do their own thing, I think we fail at realizing that we're not helping our cause. And there's some organizations that are doing some very good things, but... Nobody can tell me that if an organization comes to Shiloh and say, we want to combine with Shiloh, and this church wants to combine with Shiloh, and we're going to do this one big whatever it may be, Mm -hmm. I I think it would be more impactful. I think it would be more effective. I think sometimes we get caught up in our own territory, and we only deal with our own members. Mm -hmm. And there's 
people who may not be a member of any church and as a as a church you will want them to gain some type of membership but i think we have to go outside our membership and focus on people who just have a need and just say we're not worried about members we're going to take care of our members but we're going to focus on people who have a need there's there's a big need in this community and it's a it's and i feel like it's not being filled with the necessary people to mm-hmm. help us out here. And when I say people, I'm saying even elected officials at the churches and the community-based organizations. Until we all get on one page, I always say we need one big council to sit down, talk some issues, make some guidelines, and work together as one. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the lack of unity we can see every day on Channel 2 and Channel 9 when we turn on the news mm-hmm. and these kids are out there doing some terrible things and we wonder why it's because we're not reaching them. And I think together we can reach them. With regard to uh, education mm-hmm. programs, because I would imagine that if we can keep young people occupied uh, in preparing and equipping themselves academically, uh, then it gives them less motivation mm-hmm. to be doing other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you see coming up within the school system uh, that can be of help to dealing with the juvenile uh, situations that exist in our parish? And my take on our school system, we need to... In, 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 John Bell Edwards did a good job with the $1,000 for the teachers, but that pales in comparison to other states. We need to invest in our teachers more because I don't. I think we lose out. Just like in juvenile court, we lose out. We don't have good attorneys coming out to juvenile court because there's no money out there. Mm-hmm. We lose out on good, talented teachers in the state of Louisiana because there's not enough money out there. I have three children. They're a product of public schools. I have two fourth graders and one second grader. Uh, my boys, they attend Buchanan here in South Baton Rouge. They're in the gifted program. My daughter, she goes to Westdale Heights Magnet School. They're, they're in the EBR school system. Mm-hmm. I think it, it, there's some schools that aren't working as good as they should, but I think it's because we have a lack of investment in our schools. We have a lack of community involvement. Every time I look around, I see people who take their kids out of EBR schools to put them in these other schools that they rather pay for. We have to invest in our schools. I don't want to get into what's going to happen with St. George because I can't be political, but it's not going to be political in yeah, here. Well, I'm, I'm, running <laughs> for, what you want I'm running for judge, so I'm trying not to be as political because right now I think that's, a, that's considered a political issue. Yeah. But I think we really have to look at investing in our schools. We have brand new schools coming up on certain side of the town. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to McKinley, it's like they're going to rebuild it, but they're not willing to put as much money into it. A third. A third. A when third it, of what they put into third. Lee High School. Yeah. Glenn Oates. $74 million for Lee High yes. School. Yes. $24 million for McKinley. And I hadn't heard a rational explanation for that. It's inequity just on, on showcase for everybody to see. Uh, Glenn Oates just had some renovations done, but... $12 million. $12 million, and it was only because... $74 million for Lee High School. Thank you. $12 was, million. Dollars and, for and it was only because of floodwaters. Yes. You know, so I don't see the investment... But we want to do what's best for all of our children. Yes. And no matter I, where they live, no matter what zip code they come and, from. And it's called East Baton Rouge Parish School System. So yes. we take care of the parish, right. not just a certain portion of the parish. Right. And 
if we're not willing to invest in our teachers in our schools then there's nothing we can do any other argument we have about helping our schools and making kids uh, do better and stop the school from being a D school to an A school and we're not talking about investing in our teachers and investing in our schools then there's nothing we can do can judges be advocates for social programs uh, because the, the problems that that, that, that you're well, that we are mm -hmm. lifting, I guess I'm the one who's saying it. Mm -hmm. uh, the academic uh, disparity or, mm -hmm. or the the disparity in how funds are being spent within the parish that's one thing. Food deserts mm -hmm. are, are, are another thing. That 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 that's a social mm -hmm. issue when you don't have grocery stores in these areas. I think we can advocate uh, for that. Uh, lack of. Uh, adequate employment mm -hmm. uh, you know every, the, the 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 Republicans want to say mm -hmm. that uh, african-american employment is at an all-time low not in this city mm -hmm. it is not mm -hmm. and not in particular neighborhoods mm -hmm. it's not and when you look at the kinds of jobs that they're calling employment mm -hmm. uh, where you're getting paid seven and eight dollars an hour and you're expected to feed a family of four on that it's ridiculous can a judge can a juvenile court judge can a juvenile court lawyer mm -hmm be an advocate for the social maladies that bring these children into the system in the yes. first place? As a judge, we cannot be political. But I don't think it's political to tell you I live currently off of College Drive. I live in Concord Estates. We have a Super Walmart grocery store. We have an Albertsons grocery store. They just built a Sprouts grocery store. We have a Trader Joe's down the way on Perkins. And then when you go down Lee, you have Winn-Dixie. You have a neighborhood Walmart. Walmart, you have Rouse's. Yes. All within a mile or two mile radius. Yes. If I stood over the hump on Harding and Scenic and I thought about the closest grocery store I can go to, maybe Shoppers Value, maybe the closest one. On Plank Road. On Plank Road. Yes. Uh, Baker Walmart. Yes. Maybe closer than Cartana 2. Walmart. 2.7 miles away. Yes. I lived in Southern Heights. Yes. So, so, <laughs> so you know. Yes. So when it's time for me to go to the store, I tell my wife, I said, I'm getting ready to get groceries. I'm going across the street. I literally called Walmart across the street. You right. know, I make some turns, but it's right there. Right. Maybe a two-minute drive at the most. If you live in Southern Heights, go to Shoppers Value maybe. You know, and I don't know what time Shopper Value. And you don't want to go to Shopper's Value. I know why. If you live in Southern Yes. Heights. I mean, you, you made, you, there's nowhere to get fresh vegetables. No. Fresh fruits. And all of these things play a part yes. in why juveniles are where they are. They are. And, you know, it, it's one thing to say, okay, we need to elect this person to this office, mm -hmm. or we need to mm -hmm. do this, uh, we, we need to help this person get into this seat. But unless these social Social justice mm -hmm. issues are addressed. Yes. Uh, I fear that we're going to just continue to repeat the same problems yes. that we have. And, and every time it's repeated, with, with, with every succeeding generation, it seems to get a little bit yes. worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse. I had a talk with a, a, a black business owner. He owns a restaurant yesterday. And he kind of shocked me what, what he said. But when I thought about it, I actually agreed with him. He says, Mr. Hamer, I was around in the 50s and 60s, and we fought for a lot. We were better off 
in the 50s and 60s. Sure. And I said, well, well, I don't know. What about this and what about these strides? He says, we fought so we can have more uh, black judges. We fought so we can have more black elected officials. Mm-hmm. Now that we have it, there's a lot of infighting going on between black elected officials. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the incarceration rate for African-American males, it's increased. If you look at uh, the ownership of minority businesses, it's decreased. Yes. You know, South Baton Rouge was a hub for businesses and um, uh, physician offices and dentist offices. Everything you needed was right here in South Baton Rouge. They built an interstate that cut right through it, cut through uh, my church, St. Francis Xavier, destroyed the community. Community never recovered. Drugs came into the community. Right. Community never recovered. We're living off of the ramifications of what happened back in the 60s and 70s when we started electing black officials. It just hadn't got as better as some of the older generation thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Now, from my generational standpoint, I'm, I miss my argument that I think we made strides. We, we're better off. But he made a, a very good point with me. You're coming from the new generational viewpoint because you're thinking about the marches we had to have, the, the, the integration that we fought for, and the fact that we had to drink out of separate water fountains. We're just thinking about our family units were sound and our communities were sound. And you fast forward to 2019, the family units aren't what they were uh, 50 years ago, and the community is definitely not what it was 50 years ago. Right. So those are things that, you know, just made me think the other day that, that, that he was actually making a very good point, and I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. You have three children. Yes. They're fairly young, middle school and elementary school. Uh, all three elementary. <laughs> they're, okay. They're 23 months apart. We had three kids in 23 months. I wouldn't advise anybody to do that. In the words of yeah. Tennessee, Ernie yeah. Ford, bless your pee picking. <laughs> My goodness, yes. <laughs> at, least they, at, least they, at least they do everything together. They're yeah. not too uh, spread out. As your children grow, do you think about where they might want to live? Mm-hmm. Do you, th- do you think about whether or not you want them, you and your wife, want them to plant their flag in Baton Rouge? Yes. Or would you prefer it mm-hmm. if they chose or if life carried them in a different direction? I know every parent wants their child yes. to be close. Yes. But, but given what you know about this community, mm-hmm. given what you have seen within mm-hmm. this community, do you have any concerns about your yes. children uh, being raised uh, or raising their own families yes. within this community? Well, I have two boys and one girl. And before I had children, I don't know what I worried about. I guess I worried about if the Saints were going to win or not. Uh, I felt like I didn't have everyday worries. Mm-hmm. I worry about my kids all day, every day, you know, from the fact they're in schools and we have all this madness with and evil in the world with school shooting, the fact that I have two black boys and, you know, I want them to always have a positive image of themselves and sometimes they, they, they get information that I hate that they receive and they think that it's not a positive image of themselves and I try to show them that your their hair is their hair and the, their skin color is their skin color. God made you just how he wants to make you. You're perfect in God's eyes. So you think about those things and I think that's any community you have those type of concerns. But as far as Baton Rouge, 
like I said, I came back in 96. I couldn't wait to get back. Mm-hmm. I love Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was different when I got back. I was a little disappointed in some things. Uh, but I focused. I, I stayed on campus for four years. So I focused on campus. And then when I was in law school, my head was in the books for three years. It wasn't until 03 when I started practicing that I became what I would say really a part of the Baton Rouge community and really started uh, being involved in uh, different organizations. Uh, after Alton Sterling in July of 2016, it was painful because there was so much tension in this city at that time after the Alton Sterling incident. Then we had the officers that were killed on airline. Then I just thought the city was ready to explode. It was bad. And I even talked to my wife. I said, I don't know if I can be a part of a rebuild effort here because nobody wants to talk about race. Right. You bring it up and they would rip you apart right away right it's one of the most difficult topics to talk about but i always believe intellectuals you get to a table we can talk about these issues dealing with race then we had the flood come through i had a family member that was totally impacted by the flood and i thought to myself well maybe this is god's sign that y'all may need to move on but i'm glad i stayed behind because there's a lot of work to be done and i literally have my sleeves rolled up right now we need workers we need people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and do the work that may be uncomfortable for other people. And you're one of those workers, Pastor. Uh, since the flood, uh, you know, I filed this motion in Clinton about a Confederate monument. I had a client that just, you know, he saw what happened in Charlottesville. He, he wanted to express that he thought it was wrong for his case to be heard in a courthouse where they're displaying reverence to the Confederacy. Right. He's forced to be on trial facing 20 years in prison, and they're revering the Confederacy. So I filed the motion, and I right away received death threats, racist phone calls, Mm -hmm. and I realized we have a long way to go Mm -hmm. in Baton Rouge, Mm -hmm. in this general area. Mm -hmm. And for those people who believe that we have overcome that is over is not we have a lot to do within our own community but in the black and white communities together to to deal with the issue of race it's like nobody wanted to talk about race even with the alton sterling incident you know you have one group of people that says it has nothing to do with race and you have the other group of people saying it has everything to do with race right and we couldn't even agree on that so recently when uh Chief Paul came out with his press conference. I think, I think it's really three years too late, personally. And I personally believe that body cam footage, if you have body cam footage, that needs to be released within a matter of weeks, mm-hmm. not two years later. And mm-hmm. that was released two years later. It's, our city went through a lot just to be what I call Baton Rouge, a big city, but a small town all in one. Mm-hmm. It, it went through a lot. And I think we can still come together. I think that we can be more unified. We unify behind LSU football and the Saints. You can go anywhere and talk about the Saints and Coach O and everybody will love you. But as soon as you say, let's talk about racial disparity, then they they don't want to hear from you anymore. The tension from 2016 isn't as tense anymore. I can still sense a little bit of it, uh, especially after what uh, the press conference by Chief Paul, but it's nowhere where it was back in uh, 2016. I, I think we were a powder keg. It, we were ready to explode in this city. Uh, and at that time, 
and this is the, the, the best part about not working for a governmental agency. I was out at the Paris prison getting I started getting one client out of jail because he was protesting and he went to jail. But when I got there, there were so many people that just needed, I need help. I need to get out. I got bench warrants. They're saying they're not going to release me. So I spent three, four days getting protesters out of jail during the Alton Sterling uh, incident. And at that time, I was thinking this city can't handle this. You know, if we don't have our elected officials, our, our spiritual leaders sit down and work through our issues. The city is is going to literally be Gotham. I know the mayor said she, we, we're not in Gotham City in 2016. I felt like we were on the verge of being Gotham. Mm-hmm. Uh, Prayerfully, I think we've come a long way since 2016, but we have a long way to go to rebuild trust in the African-American community, to deal with the racial issue. The filing of the motion with the Confederate monument showed me that there's still a lot of bigots out there. Uh, We have a long way to go. I think we'll get there. As far as my kids living here, Baton Rouge is a a wonderful town. All of my best memories are here in Baton Rouge. We do have to do a lot more to keep our young people here. We have this top scholarship, and people get top scholarship. There's no job for them here. So, yeah, they got to go to Texas and Atlanta because there's nothing here. Right. We have to do a better job of keeping our young people here. So if my son or my daughter says uh, the opportunity is here in Baton Rouge, I would want them to stay. But if that opportunity is not in Baton Rouge, they shouldn't stay just because dad is here and dad loves it. I want them to follow their hearts and mm-hmm. I want them to go where the opportunity presents itself. Mr. Hamer, Niles Hamer, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you all for viewing. We'll be back again next time. Thank you. Thank you.